Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. The Guardian. More than a year after the first coronavirus case was detected in the UK, the government finally catches up with other countries on travel restrictions. I'm Jessica Elgott, Deputy Political Editor of The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly. Anyone who lies on the passenger locator form and tries to conceal that they've been in a country on the red list in the 10 days before arrival here will face a prison sentence of up to 10 years. In response to the new COVID variants entering the UK, the Health Secretary Matt Hancock announced in the Commons yesterday that travellers arriving from coronavirus hotspots who refused to adhere to the new restrictions could face £10,000 fines and jail sentences of up to 10 years. The move might seem extreme, but given how long we've known about variants cropping up since the new year, many are asking, is it too little too late? Over the last few weeks, we've seen the UK government grapple with how many restrictions it should copy and adopt from elsewhere in the world. I wanted to hear how people looking from the outside in feel the UK has handled its pandemic response. And later on, my colleagues from Europe and Asia tell me more. Later on, the Community Secretary Robert Jenrick is expected to announce billions of pounds in extra support to address the cladding crisis that was exposed after the Grenfell Tower fire in 2017. This influx of money will be welcomed by many, although some are suggesting developers should pay. Will it be enough to help hundreds of thousands once again feel safe in their own homes? On top of that, the Prime Minister managed, ever so slightly, to see off a fresh backbench rebellion over Britain's trade approach to countries suspected of committing genocide. And that's all in this week's Politics Weekly. But first, all eyes are on hotel rooms, mainly those next to Heathrow, as the details of the hotel quarantine scheme have been released. And to discuss this and much more, I'm joined by my colleague John Crace, the Guardian's parliamentary sketchwriter. John, I'm, I'm chatting to you at home where there seems to be some tree surgery going on outside, um, which is a good, a good start to our chat. But um, we finally got the details of this, this quarantine hotel policy. It feels like we've been talking about this for weeks and it's been so long in the making. The first question is, I guess, is it just too little too late? Well, it certainly feels that way. We're talking about a policy that other countries have successfully implemented a year ago. And we've been talking about doing the same, but failing to do anything. And and now we seem to have a list of 33 red list countries 
but it doesn't even appear to be that inclusive of all the countries that are meant to be on it. And then we got the kind of bonkers 10 years prison sentence. Yeah, I mean, that is, that is you know, quite a draconian move. And in a way, I guess you have this idea of 10 years in prison if you're seen breaking the rules. I mean, I think you probably have to have a, a fair amount of aggravating circumstances to be handed that sentence. But you have that, that sort of move that's going to upset a lot of Tories. And then you also have the fact that the hotel quarantine policy doesn't apply to all countries. So it both you seem like you end up a bit with the worst of both worlds in that you, you have this kind of PR stunt show of force in the 10-year jail sentence, which doesn't actually, isn't ever going to be handed down probably. And then big gaps in the system that do allow new variants to get through. I mean, who, who, is, this, who is this policy actually aimed at, John? That's a very good point. I have no idea. I mean, it it seems to be the the government has recognised that it's made an error in not doing something. It's not an inclusive list. So, I mean, people can still be arriving from countries that have nasty variants of COVID, but aren't on the red list. And I mean, with the with a ten year prison sentence, it's not even clear if there's an offence that they can be charged with. So, what I wondered was whether it was a sort of dead cat thing. Get everybody talking about the ten year prison sentence, and then maybe not think too much about why the policy's been put in place and why it's not actually that effective. Yeah, I think that's I think that's probably right. We know the government's putting a lot of eggs in the the vaccination program basket. It's it's clearly the UK's biggest biggest asset. But a lot of Tory MPs are kind of bringing up this idea of if we've constantly got to protect the vaccinated population against new variants, then when can these travel restrictions end? Is it only when the whole world is vaccinated or is it, you know, just has to be a stopgap? How how will it actually work? Again, that seems to be totally unclear. I mean, judging by what Matt Hancock was saying in the Commons yesterday, we're going to have to put everything on hold until we're vaccinated against various variants. I mean, he was very much putting the dampers on the idea of once everybody over 50 has had their two jabs, then we'll be back to normal. And and the thing is that it's also... There seems to be so much unjoined up government today. It was. It's really hard to know if sort of Matt Hancock was actually just freelancing at that particular point, and it is really government policy to wait until you know a booster jab that will be effective against the South African and South American variants, or whether you know there, there is some kind of plan. I mean, because I think what it is clear is that the South African and the South American variants aren't the last variants we're going to see. So, I mean, we could be in this sort of perpetual state of limbo, I suppose. Yeah, you've always had a pretty keen interest in Matt Hancock in your in your sketches. I suppose he's he's often the minister, you know, sent out to bat. And you've noticed in recent weeks that you think he's he's kind of got his tiggerish energy back. He's he's smiling again because of the success in rolling out the vaccine. Is there anything coming down the, the track that, that could wipe that smile off again? And, and, and do you think these travel restrictions or, or, or a sort of prolonged lockdown might, might do that? Well, I mean, 
Matt Hancock and I sort of seem to be sort of locked into this sort of very unhealthy, dysfunctional relationship with one another, whereby I kind of find myself having to sketch him, you know, some twice, sometimes even three times a week. And I certainly think that the vaccine program, I think it probably, well, it took the, it's taken me by surprise how effective it's been. And I get the feeling it's probably taken the government by surprise as well. I wouldn't be at all surprised if when Boris had said the top four tiers will be vaccinated by February the 15th, Matt Hancock didn't inwardly groan and think, oh God, there's a target, another target I'm going to miss. But I mean, as for what's coming down, I mean, I think the variants are going to be his biggest headache. To go back to what we were talking about earlier, it's then a question of when do you actually release restrictions? I mean, because presumably you can't lock down the country indefinitely. I think, you know, having got it so wrong previously, I mean, Matt Hancock will be really tense about when to release and to take his foot off the brakes. The Conservative government's battling hotel bookings, but we've heard a little bit more from Labour this week. Rachel Reeves um, did a big speech on Monday, which I think feels to me, apart from the Shadow Chancellor Annalise Dodds, the, you know, the sort of first big intervention we've seen from another cabinet minister. Taxpayer money irresponsibly and unforgivably wasted. Rich donors given jobs for life in the House of Lords. Um, she did this big speech about cronyism and taking uh, back control of, of public contracts um, and, and criticising the Tories for handing contracts out to their mates during the pandemic. And we've said for a while that the Chatter Cabinet really needs to sort of start making itself known to the public. How do you rate Rachel Reeves? And, and, and you know, is she the sort of strongest perform that Keir Starmer's got in a cabinet, which we don't know that much about still? I, I think she is very good. I've always rated her. And I think the cronyism thing is one that does stand up. I mean, some of the heat was slightly taken away by the fact that Kate Bingham, as chief exec of the Joint Committee on Vaccinations and the Vaccines Task Force, has done so spectacularly well. But we shouldn't sort of forget that sort of Dido Harding had a sort of absolute nightmare uh, when she came in as head of Test and Trace. And there have been numerous other stories of Tory donors that have sort of had PPE contracts that they haven't fulfilled, or the goods that they've supplied haven't been suitable for the task in hand. So I, th- I, th- I think it's been a good move on, on Labour's part. And, I mean, I think, you know, Rachel Reeves is as good as any of them. If nothing else, it feels like the the speech was the first shows of a kind of concrete Labour policy. And and voters are going to need to see more from this, aren't they? Especially maybe in the run up to the the budget. Well, yeah. I mean, in a way, I kind of feel slightly sorry for Labour at the moment because in the middle of a pandemic, I mean, government appears to have all but stopped. I think there is a certain amount of feeling that Labour wants to be seen or need, and indeed needs to be seen to be supportive when when the government actually gets various bits right and not just generally just be, you know, criticise them, uh, the government for, for, for everything. 
So I think the you know Labour has had to kind of pick and choose its moments, and I think cronyism is a very good way in. So there was another attack on the government on Tuesday, but this time it was coming from the Tory backbenchers, some who were really splitting blood over this this the, the trade bill, where some Tory MPs arranged a vote on the back of an amendment passed by the Lords, which would have given the UK courts a role in determining whether a country is committing genocide. The problem was that the, there seems to be this bit of a parliamentary stitch-up, meaning that all those MPs who wanted to rebel would have to also back a separate Labour amendment. It is all quite complicated, but it's really set off some very bad feeling uh, on the uh, in Parliament, hasn't it, John? Well, yeah. I mean, my understanding is that it is only a court that can decide whether a genocide has been committed. And, you know, the amendment that the Tories wanted to go through was that Parliament would need to have a vote after the Supreme Court or High Court ruling seemed self-evidently fair. But, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. What's at stake here is a Chinese trade deal that we, we seem to desperately need. The government is doing everything in its power to make sure that backbenchers don't get their a chance to kind of put an oar in. But in the meantime, as you say, there is a lot of discontented backbench Tory MPs. I mean, I think the fudge that the Foreign Affairs Select Committee can say, oh, we're not very happy about this trade deal because of a genocide. Basically, they can do that now anyway. Lord Alton, who is the crossbench peer who introduced the genocide amendment to the trade bill, uh, has said that he's going to try and reintroduce it to the Lords. So it'll probably come back next week. Yeah, we'll have the, the same row all over again and the government might not be able to avoid it. And that brings us to Wednesday. So it's been a bit of a busy week. Um, we're expected to hear hearing from, from Robert Jenrick about billions of pounds to try and fix those major safety issues in blocks that were raised after the Grenfell Tower disaster in 2017. I mean, it's been a long time in the making. Another thing that's been even longer in the making and uh, sent people bankrupt and suicidal and has you know, made people live in un- unlivable, unmortgageable, unsellable homes. Surely the government must have got the message by now that it just needs to make this money available, even if it then tries to claw it back from, from developers. I mean, you would have thought so. But I mean, as we were talking about with the kind of the border and the hotel and the hotel quarantines, their ability to sort of do too little too late should never be underestimated. I mean, there, there is a rumour going around that they're only going to give money to people who live in homes that are taller than 18 metres, which would be seem to me to be just totally unfair. I mean, I don't know why, why you would do that. You know, the government has spent $400 billion on a uh, rescue package for the economy during the pandemic to not be able to find an extra two or three billion here or there to cost a cladding. Uh, I mean, don't forget, I mean, Grenfell was three and a half years ago and they promised at the time that they would deal with it as a matter of urgency. And all we've seen so far is, is total delay. Between COVID and everything else, there's an awful lot to chew over this week. John Crace, thank you ever so much for joining me. 
Thank you. After the break, I'll be speaking to two correspondents in Paris and Taipei about how the UK's COVID response plan has been viewed by countries around the world. We'll be right back. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Welcome back to Politics Weekly. I'm Jessica Elgott. Now, as we mentioned in the first half of the show, the UK government has announced from the 15th of February that people entering the United Kingdom from 33 countries on the red list will need to complete a 10-day hotel quarantine stay. Each person will have to pay £1,750, which is more expensive than its Australian and New Zealand counterparts. This action, however, comes almost a year after countries in the Asia-Pacific decided to do the very same thing – And there are concerns that picking and choosing countries with variants rather than a one-size-fits-all policy just won't work. Is the UK government doing the right thing by straying from other countries' methods? And it made me think more about how the UK is viewed by other countries and what both our neighbours and those in distant lands are also struggling with to combat the pandemic. To discuss this, I spoke to Helen Davidson, The Guardian's reporter based in Taipei in Taiwan, and John Henley, The Guardian's Europe correspondent, who's in Paris. Helen and John, thank you so much for joining me. Helen, I thought I'd start off by asking you a little bit about your personal experience of hotel quarantine, which I think you did last year in Taipei when you moved over from Sydney. Uh, tell us a little little bit about what that was like. So I moved from one of the most heavily restricted borders to another, which involved an enormous amount of paperwork. So firstly, because I'm an Australian citizen, I needed the Australian government's permission to leave the country. That's a policy that's been in place since about March or April last year and is still in place. And I also had to have an entry permit for Taiwan because their borders are also closed. I had a negative COVID test result and a quarantine hotel booked on the other side. And if I didn't have any of that, they wouldn't have let me on the plane. It was sort of a pretty uneventful flight, but once we arrived in Taipei, they they took us off a plane, lined us up for temperature checks. Um, We had to queue to register for the quarantine monitoring system. Taiwan's response is very technology-based, so they're using your phone signal and your proximity to Wi-Fi and that sort of thing to make sure that you're staying in quarantine if you're doing it at home. For us, we're in hotels, so it's much easier to keep an eye on us. But, you know, it it was a really smooth process. Wow. I mean, that must have been quite an ex- quite an experience. I, I think the main thing I think we want to talk about is, um, is how have other countries seen the way the UK has responded? And since you've been in Taipei, and, and also perhaps you could give us a, a perspective as well on the Australian press, how, how do media outlets paint a picture of how the UK has handled this pandemic? 
I think people are pretty horrified uh, seeing the way that the UK has handled it. You know, there are such close ties between the UK and Australia and the UK and Hong Kong in particular. The way it's been reported, I think, is that the UK has tried to beat the virus without doing the things that everybody else has accepted that they have to do. And that's border restrictions, tough lockdowns at the start, mask wearing, hotel quarantine, all these things that some places like Taiwan, China, Hong Kong, Australia have been doing for more than a year now. John, the same across Europe, which obviously has experienced much higher death tolls, much stricter lockdowns for more prolonged periods than, than other parts of the world. But how does the media across Europe kind of portray how things are going in the United Kingdom? And particularly, how do they, they see how Boris Johnson has handled things? I mean, you're right to highlight Boris Johnson. I think that the, um, you know, the general perception of him is, I mean, certainly during the certainly during Brexit, it was well. This is just an insane and crazy and, and crazy project. The only reason you would be doing this is for sort of you know ideological reasons, really. Boris Johnson is a is a great lover of slogans, and the continent saw that through the Brexit process. And it was sort of you know the get Brexit done and the take back control and and make Britain great again and 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 all this kind of stuff. And I think the feeling on the continent, despite obviously, as I said notwithstanding the fact that there are several countries in Europe that have that have suffered uh, terrible death tolls. The feeling is, you know, that you can't actually fight a pandemic with those kind of slogans. And that, yeah, I think the general feeling is that the decisions that had to be taken um, were taken too late and they weren't tough enough. Let's talk about one of the really key differences, I suppose, which is still, is still ha- happening between the, the UK's approach and many countries in Asia and in Australia and New Zealand is the is the hotel quarantine policy, which is coming in here from the 15th of February, although only from very high risk countries, you know, particularly those who might be at risk of, of spreading new variants. And the UK government has been consulting, I think, with Australia and New Zealand for some advice on this. But Helen, do you, what do you think about this idea of, of, of only quarantining people from particular uh, hotspot countries? And obviously, lots of countries across Asia haven't taken that approach. How do you think that will be viewed? Yeah, so a lot of people are starting to talk about this, particularly here in Taiwan, where the hotel quarantine system is so strict and so regimented. I think there are sort of two main reactions to the UK's plan. One is, as you pointed out, that it is only applying to people from particular countries as opposed to applying to everyone but giving exemptions to people who have come from a country where there's little or no virus there. So people are talking about that as being a bit backwards. Well, the, the other reaction is that the rate of infection within the UK is so high that it seems strange that there's this sudden emphasis on protecting against the influx of new cases. And that makes sense when you're looking at new strains like the South African, wanting to stop the South African strain coming in and that sort of thing. But there is this sort of confusion about why the UK is suddenly so worried about people bringing the virus in when they've had a year of essentially free travel. And now the UK itself is one of the worst places with the virus. John, well, how do you, do you think that European nations are, li- are likely to consider uh, even tougher border measures given that the new strains that are emerging? Uh, it's difficult, isn't it, to, to to erect borders in between European nations, particularly, but that there have some 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 countries more than others have taken those kinds of steps. 
yes, I mean, I think that you need to draw a distinction between, as you say, between the sort of the EU's external borders and uh, and the internal borders. As regards the sort of external borders, then the EU uh, sort of maintains this list of, of safe countries. There are only about a half a dozen countries on it. And from those countries, you are you're allowed to enter the block from those countries uh, without a negative COVID test or any requirement to quarantine, but from literally everywhere else in the world. you Not only do you require a very specific reason to travel, you need a, uh, on top of that, you need a, a, a recent negative test from most, if you're coming in from many other countries and in many EU countries, you also need to take a second kind of lateral flow rapid test as when you arrive and you and you need to sort of commit to quarantine if either of those tests shows anything you know anything wrong and it's also it is also starting to become the case within the EU and the EU has set up this kind of color coded uh, system what they want to do what the EU is particularly keen to do is to um, avoid what happened during the first wave last spring when countries kind of unilaterally started closing the the inter- internal EU borders and that was a major problem for sort of freight transport and cross-border workers and the, it really threatened the sort of the functioning of the whole single market so they they want to avoid that but there are now you know coming into France coming into the Netherlands uh, from other from high-risk EU countries. It's almost the same as if you're coming in from a from a non-EU country. You, you, need a, you need a very good reason to travel and you need a PCR test and a lateral flow test when you arrive. So the borders are definitely closing. Let's talk a little bit more broadly about, about the way that testing's functioned and vaccinations and this idea of a, of a, a zero COVID strategy, which uh, some politicians in the UK have been, have been arguing the UK needs to, to adopt. We're, we're an extremely long way from being able to pursue that strategy so far. But, but Helen, in places like Hong Kong and China, it's been such a strict system that people will, you know, we, there's been reports that Hong Kong police, for example, lock people into their homes until they're tested. If, if they're refused, they're fined. In China, obviously, you've got to scan QR codes in you know pretty much everywhere you go so that your movements can be tracked. How do people feel about this approach, which I think is probably something that would not be accepted in the UK, you know, for good or, or bad reasons? Compliance here hasn't been hasn't been nearly as good as as in some countries. Are people happy with that approach from government uh, governments across Asia? In China, Hong Kong, Taiwan, people are much more willing, I think, to um, to do what's required of them when it comes to these sort of restrictions. But having said that, there have definitely been missteps or overreaches or particular methods that have drawn criticism that have really, you know, upset people or alarmed people. And you mentioned the um, Hong Kong authorities' new method of testing people. That's been pretty controversial. So the short version is that they're doing these ambush-style lockdowns of buildings or, you know, residential buildings or blocks. So the police are showing up with no notice at all and there's a pretty alarming footage of squads of police officers running up a street towards a building and then cordoning it off with the police tape and then everyone who's inside now that includes residents anyone who happens to be a guest of those residents if there are shops in that building it includes the employees and the customers of those shops everybody has to stay put until everyone is tested now that could be one to three days, which is obviously pretty alarming if you've just walked into a shop to have a quick browse and now you're suddenly locked in there for three days. 
it's caused quite a bit of consternation and it's it's also raised questions about the effectiveness and the cost effectiveness of it as well. These are incredibly resource-heavy operations. They are not returning that much. So these testing drives are sort of returning only a handful, sometimes zero results. Uh, the government's saying that's a good thing because it means that no one's positive, but epidemiologists that I've spoken to have pointed out that that's not necessarily true. So this has been a pretty a pretty controversial strategy in Hong Kong. It's also coming off the back of very, very low levels of trust in the government there. What Hong Kong people will tell you is that their success has been largely driven by the community, that they felt the government was quite slow to start and was too deferential to China. China, there is a high level of compliance, but in the same token, there's not a whole lot of choice there either. The QR codes, that the health apps, there's been talk of them becoming a, a permanent part of China's sort of health and tech apparatus, but you know, we'll see what happens with that as well. John, obviously the UK, it's famously the UK's test and trace system has not been exactly world beating. I mean, the testing has, has, has generally gone okay, apart from a few hiccups, but the, the tracing part of it has, has generally been seen to be abysmal. That has been the case, that test and trace across Europe. And I'm generalising, obviously, but that, but, that, but France has seen problems with its system and with its apps. Um, there's been plenty of, of cases uh, in other countries as well, where, you know, the, the setting up those kind of systems has been difficult. Do you think this is a, you know, kind of a general a problem that's not unique to the UK? Or do you think the UK has been particularly bad at it? Yeah, I, I don't think it is unique to the UK. I mean, I think the, the sort of the sorry truth with test and trace is that it, it's just simply it, it becomes physically impossible, or at least extremely difficult once the caseload goes beyond a certain point. Uh, I mean, I think the sort of the, the prime example of that is Germany, which, you know, had a, a, a had a remarkably successful first wave last spring and a very efficient test and, and trace system. And then it sort of all went pear-shaped after the summer holidays. And Germany's had a, you know, a, has had a dreadful, is, and is still, you know, in, in pretty strict lockdown. Um, and, a, you know, caseload is coming down. Now infection numbers are coming down. But they're still at relatively very high levels. And under those conditions, conditions, test and trace becomes very, very complicated. It's worked much better in countries where they've really, uh, they've managed to hold the numbers down to a, to, to a relatively low level. So I'm thinking particularly relatively, well, not, not, not small countries, but countries with relatively small populations. For example, Finland uh, has a very effective test and trace system, Iceland, uh, these kind of places. Helen, to talk a little bit about vaccinations, obviously the biggest hot topic in the UK, how do Australians feel about not really starting it at any vaccination programme yet? Obviously, Scott Morrison seems quite hesitant to get those things moving. I think they're taking advantage of the fact that there is a low level of infection in Australia and the idea that having a significant outbreak is going to be far more damaging to the economy than playing it safe for a little bit longer. The government did initially say it was going to wait for more evidence about the vaccines before starting the program. Um, they didn't want to rush through the approvals process like other places did. But then there was a pretty significant outbreak over Christmas in New South Wales around Sydney. And so that timeline sped up. Having said that, it's still, I think the current plan is that it might begin in March, um, but it's still a very slow rollout. And I think the Australian case, it's one of those interesting cases where, like Taiwan, their success has meant that they're actually at a slight disadvantage with the vaccine because there isn't that urgency. So it makes perfect sense to me to concentrate on vaccinating populations where the virus is rampant because you need to get that under control for many, many reasons. One, to stop people dying. Two, to also stop these further mutations coming out. But obviously people in these places like Australia, Taiwan, Hong Kong, 
where there isn't that much presence of the virus, they're still scared of it. You know, there are still people coming in, there are still cases popping up and outbreaks. And so there is, you know, they, they would like the, the vaccine program to start quite quickly. And at the same time, they're also dealing with some pretty high profile myths and disinformation campaigns around vaccines from some high profile people, including members of parliament um, and a celebrity chef. So, I mean, neither these people have much credibility left, but they still got large audiences. And so there is, I think, a sense in the health community as well to get the vaccination program rolling before you know, the anti-vax campaign, for want of a better phrase, can sort of take a hold as well. John, we've talked quite a lot about uh, Europe and vaccinations over the last few weeks. But why do you think that in the UK, I think one of the one of the, the benefits there's been is that the UK population, apart from a few kind of high profile cases, is pretty, pretty keen to get the vaccine. There's not much vaccine scepticism. We hear quite a lot about it. But, you know, generally speaking, the UK population is pretty keen to get it. Um, that's not the case in some European countries, is it? Which is why there's been some concern about what President Macron's been saying, because France is, is one of the more vaccine sceptical countries in Europe. How much do you think that affects things? I think it is affecting things. Um, I mean, whether that's by accident or design, I'm, I'm not really sure. I mean, I think that the core idea uh, that the European, the, you know, that was essential for the EU to procure vaccines as, you know, as, as a block. Um, I mean, I, I think there's there's very little doubt that that was really the only way that Europe could have gone. I mean, I, I, you know, I think it would be unimaginable to to have these the twenty seven members of the of the European Union sort of fighting each other to to, to get vaccine supplies. So I think you know, at, at the end of the day, it may have been slower uh, and more cautious. Uh, than countries like the UK and and particularly Israel, I suppose, and to some extent the US. But you know that's that's not necessarily as I mean I completely un- take on board Helen's point that you know the the point is to to save lives. But it is a fact that you know the the the, the EU, EU so it has I mean it secured two point three billion doses from from six different manufacturers. They are on their way. They're taking time because the EU signed late because. Of production sort of you know shortfalls and problems and what have you but this slow rollout as you, to come back to the point that that you mentioned Jess it, you know is not necessarily a bad thing I mean I spoke to a pollster last week who'd, who'd done a, a, a major sort of pan-European poll across all 27 member states for the European Commission which found for example that although three quarters across the all 27 that three quarters of the populate of the European population said yes they would be they would be happy to be uh, to be inoculated but only a, a you know, I mean, less than 30% wanted it this year, you know, and less than 30% of those wanted it, you know, even, you know, even in the sort of a slightly longer term future. So there is very much a kind of, you know, uh, uh, you know, hurry up and wait about this. And I, I think that the, you know, the EU is looking, many Europeans are looking at, at what's happening in Britain with with awe in terms of wow, that's pretty amazing to to be able to you know administer the, that many vaccines to this that many doses to, to to that many people so fast. But they're not yet. I mean, they might come to do so, but they're not yet looking at it with envy because safety and sort of guarantees and liability questions with the you know with the manufacturers and this kind of thing, I think, are more important. That's so fascinating. Thank you so much, Helen and John, for a really interesting discussion. Thank you. No problem. Thank you. Pleasure.
And that's all from us this week. In the US, everyone is focused on the Senate impeachment trial, currently trying to determine whether or not Donald Trump was responsible for the insurrection attempt on the Capitol on January 6th. On Friday's episode of Politics Weekly Extra, Jonathan Friedland speaks to Professor Sarah Binder of the Brookings Institute about what the likely outcome will be when this political trial comes to a close. So make sure to look out for that on the same feed you found us. But for now, I want to thank our guests, John Crace, Helen Davidson and John Henley. The producers are Amy Leibovitz and Danielle Stevens. I'm Jessica Elgott. Please look after yourselves. And thanks, as always, for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. At Airbus, our products make the world a safer place and help nations protect their sovereignty. Whether it's air ambulance services at home or evacuations overseas, our technology protects citizens, safeguards security, and aids responses to crises. At Airbus, we're pioneering sustainable aerospace for a safe and united world. Learn more at airbus.com.